0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, if you have your Bibles or your app where you can follow along, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, and we've been in a three-part series, and the whole point of the series is to finish well to keep running to run with endurance the writer of hebrews said that you have need of endurance to this church that was getting tired and weary and i think it's easy for us in this period of a big pause button it feels like on the on the planet to be weary and uh, so i think hebrews is very helpful and the whole imagery of romans 12 is the imagery of running a race and so we'll come back to that Um, One of my favorite stories that Bruce Wiley tells, and Bruce isn't here to chuckle along with this, so we can kind of laugh at his expense, and maybe you've heard this story, but he once was going to a graduation party, and it was one of the Yagles who were graduating from high school. I think it was Tim. And Bruce showed up, and he saw the balloons on the mailbox, and he just cruised on inside. And when he got inside the house, there was a lot of snacks off to the right, and he could hear the party kind of going on in the next room, and he saw the nice spread of snacks on the right, and he thought, well, might as well just have at it with a few snacks before I join the rest of the crew. And as he was getting some nibbles and enjoying some of the snacks, the mother of the child whose birthday party it was came into the kitchen, and her and Bruce made eye contact, And she and Bruce were thinking the exact same thing. I don't have a clue as to who you are. (laughs) And so here's Bruce eating these snacks, and she's trying to signal to her husband, like, do you know who that is? And so Bruce just kind of just gave the head nod, like, I get it. I'll be heading out now. (laughs) And so Bruce just walked right out of that house never to be seen or heard of again. I'm sure he lives on in the folklore of that home of them laughing hilariously about the story of who was this man who came into the house. Well, in 2009, in November 24th, the Salahis, a married couple from Virginia, attended a White House state dinner for the Prime Minister of India And they were uninvited guests. They were able to pass through two security checkpoints, including one requiring positive photo identification. They entered the White House uh, complex. They had a nice meal. And they got to shake hands with the president and the first lady, got their pictures taken, and uh, the incident resulted in lots of security investigations and legal inquiries as to how did this married couple get into this state dinner? Well, the, the answer is, is they look the part. They dress to the gills. I think they originally were coming in a limousine. She had borrowed over $30,000 of jewelry that she was wearing and had a, a sort of an Indian outfit that she was wearing that was very expensive. And their manner and their insistence contributed to the officials thought since it was raining and they didn't want to hold up the line of the people waiting, that certainly we must be the ones in error, not them. They must have just somehow not gotten on the list, so they let them through. Well, what do both of these stories have in common? In both the stories, somebody uh, is at a big party, a celebration event of sorts, and they weren't invited. And they're they're not on the guest list, and therefore they don't belong. And as a result, there is great shame both on the host and on the crasher of oh, this is embarrassing. Well, you have to be on the guest list to come to the party. And so in the big picture, all of Scripture is pointing to a big party. It's a big event. It's a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's to the culmination of what all of history is pointing towards. And the big question this morning is, are you on the guest list? Or do you somehow think you can just crash the party? And Jesus actually tells a parable of Matthew of somebody who snuck in. And he tells us what happened. It's a parable, but he says, when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wedding garment is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to his people by faith. And when the king sees the garment, he sees his son. However, the wedding garment is also described in Revelation 19 as the righteous acts of the saints. How could it be both? Well, those who trust in Christ and rely on him as their sole hope of righteousness, as they lean on him, as they look to him alone for salvation, they in turn have the proper root of salvation. And that root now is going to bear fruit And it's going to bear the fruit of love that remains. And the Bible actually says that we are judged by our works. That's what the Bible teaches. Not because our works justify, but rather our works testify. And they reveal what the root really was. And if the root was really that we love Jesus, that we were looking to our mediator, that as a result we begin to bear fruit, and we bear the fruit of love, and we don't get tripped up in the race by the bitter root, as Esau stumbled and got DQ'd from the race as we saw last week. So let's give attention as we're reminded of this is where we've come to in worship, that there's a sense of there's an already not yet. You're already there. You've run the race and it's like you're already there at the finish line, though not yet. Yet when we gather on Sunday, we do gather with all those who've gone before us. So listen to God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, And then let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray for us. Father, there are some difficult things in this passage. And so we ask by your Spirit that you'd make them clear. I pray that you'd help me to make things clear. But not only clear, but uh, Lord, I pray that they would be used to help us to see Jesus, to see what he's done as the final word and the finished sacrifice once for all. And we also pray that, Lord, you would move in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that we would yield to you in all areas of our life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout the book of Hebrews, the word better is a very important word, and we get the last better in this text right here. But Jesus is better than all the old covenant has to offer. He's better than all that the world has to offer. We see that he's better than the prophets at the very beginning of Hebrews, verses 1 to 4. And then we see in the rest of chapter 1 of Hebrews that he's better than the angels. And then in chapter 3, we see he's better than Moses. And then it keeps going as uh, he's better than Joshua, chapter 4. And then we see that Jesus takes us to the true promised land. It's a better land than than the physical land of Canaan. We have a better hope, chapter 7, a better covenant, better promises, chapter 8, a better sacrifice, chapter 9, a better possession, chapter 10, a better country, chapter 11, a better resurrection, again, chapter 11, and here we get the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is a better book. And so the writer of Hebrews in this, this is all one sermon, he describes it as an exhortation. In uh, Hebrews thirteen twenty-two, it's an exhortation to stand firm, to be steadfast, as the glories of the new covenant are held up as better and superior than anything that the old covenant and Judaism had to offer. And so, here in chapter twelve, we have once again this Christian imagery of a race, and the church of e- Hebrews that he's writing to, he describes them vividly in the book, and the imagery that he gives is not good. He describes them as drifting spiritually, chapter 2. That's not a very nice thing to say, but it was true. They're drifting. They're warned of neglecting a great salvation. They're called dull of hearing. They need milk, and they're not ready for solid food. They should be teachers, but instead they're babies still living on milk, and they have need of endurance. And then they're described in the race as having drooping hands, and weak knees. This is a weary group of believers. And today we come to the climax of the sermon. Here's the apex, the summit, the culmination, the peak and the pinnacle, and we have two contrasts. In verse 18 to 24, we have a contrast of approaching God between two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. That's followed by another contrast in verse 25 to 27, And that's a contrast in location from where God is speaking. And then we have concluding exhortations for how we ought to worship. So our outline this morning is all C's. We have the contrast, the first contrast, verses 18 to 24. Then we have the only command of the passage, verse 25a, which we'll get to. So we have the contrast, the command, the second contrast, and the conclusion. So let's jump in. So the first contrast is what you have come to and what you have not come to. And we're told what you've not come to in verses 18 to 21. And it's a sevenfold description because we're going to get a sevenfold description of what you've come to. So what have you not come to this morning? When you came this morning to church, whether you're home or you're here, You didn't come to Mount Sinai. You didn't come to something physical, tangible, touchable, but all very, very scary. We have a blazing fire. That's the first thing. Then we have darkness, gloom, three. Four is a tempest or a storm. Then we have a sound of a trumpet. And so these first four things are basically describing a volcano. Okay? Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest. It is... And if this, the story and the scene is from Exodus 19 and 20. And you, can, you remember the story when the law was given and Moses had gone up. And then there's a sound of a trumpet, number five. Number six, there's a wo- voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And seven, so terrifying was the sight that Moses, the man of God, said, I tremble with fear. So this is also terribly scary. Why? Because there's no mediator. No mediator. And a sinful man knows that he can't be in the presence of a holy God and live. God is way too holy, and we are way too sinful to behold him or to think about enjoying him. And this volcanic mountain is ready to explode, and it's full of darkness and and storm. And then God speaks in the midst of that, and it's all the scarier. And they're crying out for Moses to mediate for them, right? And yet even Moses is trembling in fear. And we know that when it says God is a consuming fire where this passage ends, that would have recollected some thoughts in the minds of those who knew their scriptures. Oh yeah, that's the first time that's used in Deuteronomy 4 is the time that Moses is told he can't enter the promised land because God's a consuming fire and Moses sinned in striking the rock and he was not allowed to go into the promised land. So it's a reminder that even Moses himself was not good enough as the mediator. Okay, So the the point too is that even Moses is flawed. He needs a mediator himself. And so without Jesus, this is where we would all be. This is where we stand. If you, come to, if you think you can come to God without a mediator, then you're coming without Jesus. Do you think that you're greater than Moses? I mean, Moses thought, Moses didn't, he knew he wasn't worthy of the promised land. You think you'll just kind of levitate on in or you'll cruise in like Bruce Wiley and come right on into the party? Or do you think you'll be like the Salahis kind of sneaking on in and maybe God won't know that you're there? Are you kidding? That's a very scary thing for all of a sudden God to show up and say, to send you out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because you don't have the invitation. You're not enrolled. You see, we must have a go-between a mediator, someone who comes out and says, wait a minute, I know him, he's good, I paid for him, he's with me. You see, this little church was thinking, maybe they ought to go back to what they had before Jesus, and this was causing them not to have their best life now because they were experiencing suffering. And so maybe we ought to go back to Judaism and what we had before. And the writer is saying, Are you kidding? There's nothing there but fear. And even Moses was scared to death, and you can't go back. And the word, when it says Moses says that he trembled with fear, it's not the little phobos word, it's not the fear word. It's used very rarely. It's actually ekphobos, which means scared out of. He was terrified. He was scared out of his mind. It was scared on steroids. There's nothing there. You didn't come like that, is what the writer is saying. You've come to, now the contrast, so that's Mount Sinai. It doesn't sound very good, does it? Those seven physical, touchable, tangible things. But you've come to Mount Zion. And we come to Mount Zion because we come through Jesus. And what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, it was powerless to save us. We couldn't come in our own works and our own goodness. God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in Jesus' flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's the gospel. That's how we come to Mount Zion. And so what's amazing is that we have come to Mount Zion. It doesn't say we're on our way. It doesn't say we'll get there hopefully or someday. What does it say? How does it, verse 22, begin? You have come to Mount Zion. You're there. If you're in Jesus and you're trusting in Him, you've come to Mount Zion. Well, if you're wondering what Mount Zion is, it defines it twice afterwards. I like for people like me that just need, just tell me what it is. Oh yeah, it's the city of the living God, it's the heavenly Jerusalem. Thank you, I need the double definition clarifier of what is Mount Zion. And Mount Zion, this imagery of the Psalms about Zion, Psalm 48 says, it's the joy of the whole earth. It's the city of the great king. We're told in Psalm 150 that out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Zion's the perfection of beauty. It's heaven, and and God's going to shine above that beauty. And then in Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell... God dwells in Zion. And it's from there in Psalm 133 that it, the Lord has commanded his blessing. And how blessed it is when, when brothers dwell together in unity, but it's there in Zion that the Lord commands his blessing. So we've come to that very place this morning. Number two, you've come to innumerable angels in festal, in festal gathering. Do you see them? Do you see the angels? Me neither. But let me give you a translation of festival gathering, because that sounds like a bunch of fancy terminology. I don't like that. It actually means a joyful festival. I'll give you the Charlie Bale translation a block party. Okay? They're having a party, it's a joyful gathering. That's what it would be in our terminology. And so there's this innumerable angels, and it's a joyful occasion. The angels are not miserable. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There is joy in heaven. It's the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Number three, it's the assembly of the firstborn. That should ring some bells because who's the firstborn who got dq So it's a reminder of what Esau did. So the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled, and literally the word means registered in heaven, and we're not to be Esau's who despise what is precious and choose fleshly advantages to our spiritual demise. John Piper puts it like this. He said what Esau did is he considered what God had promised and what the life of faith would look like, and he said, no deal, give me the single meal no deal, give me the single meal. So if you choose the, the single meal, the passion and pleasure of the one night stand over the, the pleasures that are found in Jesus, you're chucking something really important. And that's what Esau did. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 when the 72, they return with joy. They had been out. They have been commissioned by Jesus to go and preach. They come back, and they're thrilled with how much God had used them. They had experienced a taste of ministerial success, and they've come home to celebrate, right? And they, they come back to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said, privately blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So when it says rejoice that your name is written in heaven, rejoice that your name is written in heaven because lots of kings and lots of prophets and lots of wise and understanding people didn't get that invitation. They didn't get enrolled. And the way to be enrolled is to put your trust like a child in Jesus and in his work that he's done for you on the cross. And to see that as necessary, good, and beautiful. Whereas the world looks at it and says, disgusting. They see it as uh, something not to be gloried in. They see it as shameful. We see it as glory. We've come to God the judge of all. This would be the most terrifying thing. But the judge of all has already passed judgment on us in Jesus. And therefore, the judge has acquitted us in Christ. Therefore, this is still a joyful gathering because Jesus has already paid for our sins and now our judge is also our Heavenly Father. We've come to number five. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So as we gather and worship, there are the saints that have gone before us are now perfect in heaven. We can't see them. The universal church is Berkhof, uh in his systematic theology. We talk about you know, the militant church and the triumphant church. Well, what's the difference? Well, Burkhoff puts it like this in his systematic theology. The church on earth, that's us, is the militant church. The church in heaven is the triumphant church. And there, the battle cries are turned into songs of triumph. And the cross is replaced with the crown. The strife is over, the battle is won, and the saints reign with Christ forever and ever. In these two stages of her existence, the church reflects both the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, of our Heavenly Lord. So it's the humiliation of the church militant and the struggles on earth and the church triumphant of the exaltation. We've, those who've gone before us are already there and yet they enter into worship with us. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and he is here. And that's the big crescendo point. Stir the drums. We have a new covenant. That's what the writer of Hebrews has been writing so much about. This new covenant is better than the old covenant that was full of fear and tempest and volcano and darkness. And Hebrews 9.15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. If there wasn't this new covenant, we would be endlessly offering blood and animals, the blood of animals to atone for our sins. But Jesus has redeemed us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Well, how did he do that? Well, that's number seven. It's the sprinkled blood of Jesus. You've come to this sprinkled word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel, if you remember, that Cain rose up and he killed his brother. And when he killed him, there was a, we are told that his blood was crying out from the ground. And his blood brought, the blood of Abel brought a curse upon Cain. C- Abel's blood continually called for justice, 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 and it brought a curse upon Cain. Cain. Well, Jesus' blood is better because Jesus' blood cries out as well. His blood was sprinkled as he took the curse and punishment of our violations of God's law, and he took them upon himself. And as a result, his blood cries out now, not for a curse, but for a blessing for all who by faith apply the sprinkled blood to the door of their hearts and to the frames of their minds. So as God says in Exodus, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you. That would kill the firstborn. But here now the firstborns are not struck down because Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, has been struck down in our place. Spurgeon put it like this, and this is a reflection quote in the bulletin part of this. He has a sermon called The Blood of Sprinkling, but he was very concerned about those who claim to love Jesus but they didn't love his sacrifice. I don't know if you meet people like that. Or, and he says this, he says, Beloved friends, there is no Jesus if there's no blood of sprinkling. There is no savior if there's no sacrifice. I put it strongly because the attempt is being made nowadays to set forth Jesus apart from the cross and the atonement. He's held up as a great ethical teacher, a self-sacrificing spirit, who's to lead the way in a grand moral reformation and by his influence to set up a king of moral influence in the world. It's even hinted that this kingdom has never had prominence enough given to it because it's been overshadowed by his cross. But where is Jesus apart from his sacrifice? He's not there if you've left out the blood of sprinkling, which is the blood of sacrifice. Without the atonement, no man is a Christian. And Christ is not Jesus. If you've torn away the sacrificial blood, you've drawn away the the heart out of the gospel of Jesus Christ and robbed it of, of its life. If you've trampled on the blood of sprinkling and encountered a common thing instead of putting it above you upon the lintel of the door and all around you upon the two side posts you have fearfully transgressed he says as for me god forbid that i should glory save in the cross of our lord jesus christ since to me that death is identical that cross is identical with jesus himself i know no jesus but he who died the just for the unjust This blood of sprinkling and the Jesus by whom we live are inseparable. In fact, they are one and indivisible, the same self thing. And you cannot truly know Jesus or preach Jesus unless you preach him as slain for sin. And so he concludes by saying, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, referring to Jesus and his sprinkled blood. And so then it leads to the, the command of the passage. The actual only command in Hebrews 12:18 to 29 is the word 25 that says "See that you do not and it's literally beware. It's like the beware of dog sign. There's a big beware warning. beware. see, See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Well how is he speaking? He's speaking a better blood than the blood of Abel. He's speaking right now. I remember the first time I was looking at this and and happened upon this in the Greek, and the first time, you know, I'm kind of looking through this, and I discover, okay, there's there's the imperative, and then I get to who is speaking, because it's a participle, and a participle in English would just be simply translated with an ing. So the ESV says, you know, uh, or one of the ESV versions says, him who speaks. This one actually says, who is speaking? And that's, that's actually the correct, it's an ing, but then it's present active. So what does present active mean? It means he's speaking right now. Does Jesus still speak to his church? He just spoke right now. Don't refuse him. This is the today book, Hebrews, five times. Today, 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 don't harden your hearts. Today he's speaking. Today, don't harden your hearts. Today he's speaking a better blood. Right now, he still speaks to his church. This reminds me of one of my favorite all-time C.S. Lewis quotes from his book, Miracles. And he says, you've had a shock like that before, and connection with smaller ladder matters when the line pulls at your hand, you know, like you're fishing. All of a sudden, something bites on the other end. Wait, something's there. And he says, when something breathes beside you in the darkness... So here the shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we've been following. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, that's the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. A personal God, well and good. Subjective God of beauty, truth and goodness inside our own heads. better still. A formless life force, a formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end, the cord, sometime, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband. well, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. That's what this passage does. He's speaking right now to his church, and he's saying, Don't refuse me. There's a lot of warnings in Hebrews. Keep running, keep enduring. And so then we get the second tr- contrast. And the second contrast is that there is a shaking that's going on. And the shaking this time is not from the earth, but from the heavens. And only what cannot be shaken may remain. And so what we have here is this idea that there is going to be a great earthquake that's going and in Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 16 talks about this cataclysmic event where the Lord is not only going to shake the earth, but he's also going to shake the heavens. And so it will be an earthquake on, in, on the earth, but it'll even be crazier in the heavens where stars will be falling. And so in Revelation 6, it's described like this. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, sackcloth and the moon became like blood. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth and the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong, everyone slave and free, they hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand before it? You see, this last day the People talk about the big one in California, you know, the big one, the big earthquake. Well, the big one's coming, and it's going to be inconceivable. Our imaginations can't conceive what it would be like to see stars falling and skies rolled up as a scroll, and the earth comes off of its foundation and collapses, and all the islands and mountains vanish, and there's only one thing left, and it's, it's God is what we'll have to stand before. You see, there's a, there's a shaking coming that is going to level all houses, all buildings, all infrastructures, all the prominent things that people have spent centuries building and putting, and all that you've put your life into. Everything in this life we have to recognize is fragile, fragile, fragile. And one of the things we realize right now with COVID 19 is how fragile that you're telling me that one person can, can you know, breathe and then I could catch something and it could kill me. And you realize, my health is fragile, my job is fragile, my future is fragile, my plans are fragile, the stock market is fragile, everything is fragile, and there's a big one coming that's going to wipe out everything. And so what's going to remain? And the answer is, what can't be shaken. And what can't be shaken is the kingdom. Is that if you're in Jesus, you're on the rock, and that rock cannot be shaken. You see, and that is the great news. And so get ready. Get ready for a shaking that will leave, that will demolish everything else. And so it should put perspective onto, well, what am I building my life upon? Am I building my identity, my dreams, and, and on something that is going to be shaking and vanishing and gone? or on something that's permanent forever and ever for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of seconds and minutes and years and lifetimes. What are you building your life on? That's what this passage is saying. Okay, in light of that, be grateful. You're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Be grateful that your name has been enrolled in heaven. Be grateful and come to God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. When you think of consuming fire, I'm reminded of the story where, you know, you watch some of these forest fires and you see some of these people driving their cars, you know, through flames, you know, some of the ones last year. And I remember a story some years ago where the, the fire came so fast over the hill that the man they interviewed, he said all he had time to do was to run into the stream and he jumped into the stream and the fire came and consumed everything and, he, and it jumped over him because he was in the water and the fire kept going but he was in the stream. And then you go back and you look at the, the, the car and all that's left is some metal and the tires to the car are gone. They've melted away, they're just gone. God's a consuming fire. All this other stuff is going to be consumed. What will last? Are you covered in the stream? The stream is the sprinkle blood of Jesus. You get in that. You got it. It's like the, it's like the chick that, you know, the, 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 the fire at the farm and, and, the, and the hen was dead and the fireman comes over and he kicks the, kicks the hen and then all of a sudden all, this, all the chicks scurry and they run off. That the hen had saved all the chicks during the fire jesus took the fire so his chicks could go free i want to close with an illustration from rich mullins and uh some of you may know his music this is an old song um and it's off from this some of you to go way back no awesome god right? It's off that album. But the song is actually called Home. And the reason I I love Rich Mullins and I love Andrew Peterson, Andrew Peterson loved Rich Mullins, and that's kind of his hero, is the theme of heaven just blows through their music. And there's such a longing for that. But he has a song called Home. And in the song called Home, I encourage you to look it up even though it's got some cheesy synthesizers and keyboards from like the late 80s. Great song. But in part of the song, he talks about how the storm, the storm comes. And he said, and everything that could be shaken was shaken. And all that remains is all I ever really had. had. What I would have settled for, what I had settled for, you've blown so far away. What you brought me to, I thought I could not reach. And I came so close to giving up, but you never did give up on me. And now he's saying, the storm is through and everything you sent to shake me from my dreams, they've come to wake me in the love I find in you. And now the morning comes and everything that really matters become the wings you sent to gather me to my home, to my home. I'm going home. Are you going home? Are you going to Mount Zion? You're not going to Mount Sinai. This is home. This is where joy and treasures are Forever and unshaken, unshakable. Let's pray. Lord, give us more longing, more love for the kingdom, for the kingdom that's breaking into this world. And give us less love and pull us away, pull our grip away from the the world and its desires that are passing away. And help us to see by faith this city that is to come. For we have no enduring city, but we seek the city that is to come. Fill us. May our hearts be set on pilgrimage. May we know that what's to come is the best. And may we live in light of that. We thank you for Jesus, the head of the church, the one who even intercedes, even now for us, Lord. Help us to run well. And to bring glory to you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.